0: From Parkway Church in Corona, this is the Parkway Podcast. Our prayer is that this message blesses and encourages you today as you listen. If you would like to know more information on who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. But if you have a
1: Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be in verse 27 to 30. Um, Charles Spurgeon, uh, was a pastor and, and, and Christian, uh, thinker who once said that if you wish to know God, you got to get in his word. I'm paraphrasing that a little bit, but if you want to know God, you got to get in his word. So we're looking at the word today. And if you're taking notes, you can write down the turning point, the turning point, uh, Mark chapter eight, verse 27. Here we go. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Let's bow our heads one more time and pray. Father, we just commit right now this uh, time we have to your word We ask that you'd open our hearts and our minds to receive uh, truth from you, God, to receive your voice. Lord, I know that I can speak, but I pray, God, ultimately, would you speak to every heart? Would you penetrate every soul, God? Would you speak to every mind in the name of Jesus? Would you reveal yourself as only you can, Lord? And as we look to your word, God, and as we hear from your word, would you transform us so that when we leave this place, God, we will be better representatives, looking a little bit more like Christ in the name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, amen. So back in uh, the 90s, there was this iconic movie that I grew up loving. In 1991, it was released called Hook. And Hook is a movie about Peter Pan who has grown up outside of Neverland, outside of remembering even he was part of Neverland and part of being Peter Pan. In fact, he doesn't remember that he's Peter Pan at all. He doesn't remember that he was the leader of the Lost Boys and the arch enemy of, of Captain Hook and the hero to Neverland. And in the story in the movie, oh, there's pictures there. In the story and in the movie, um, Captain Hook has come to the real world and kidnapped Peter Pan's kids. Peter Pan has grown up and he now has kids. And Captain Hook's taken his kids back to Neverland. And so Tinkerbell, if you if you remember the the, the story of Peter Pan, Tinkerbell is the little fairy that that you know does the fairy dust stuff. I don't even know if this is the fairy dust stuff, but does the fairy dust stuff, and that causes Peter Pan and. And the kids to fly. And so she comes back to the real world, and she takes Peter and brings him back to Neverland in order to save his kids. The problem is, is he doesn't remember he's Peter Pan. He doesn't remember much about his past, and everybody else doesn't really believe or know that he's Peter Pan. The Lost Boys don't. Captain Hook doesn't. And so the story is really Peter rediscovering his past. It's really him rediscovering his past and trying to prove to, to him and to others that he is, in fact, Peter Pan. So in the the movie, as he's progressing, the, the lost boys, there's a couple moments where they start to believe that he is in fact Peter Pan, but there's one moment in particular that really marks like a turning point in the story. So Peter has finally realized his past and remembered his past, and he comes flying into the lost boys' hideout, and he's dressed in the Peter Pan getup, right? He just looks like a grown-up Peter Pan, like a, like, a, like a grown man wearing a costume on Halloween. And so he comes flying into the Lost Boy hideout, and they're coming out of all their places, and they're just ecstatic. They're looking, and they're wowed, and they're amazed, and they can't believe what they see. And so in this particular moment, he comes and he lands, and all the lost boys come and gather around him. And the leader of the, the lost boys at the time goes by the name of Rufio. If you can put up that slide, you'll see him in the center. That guy right there with the, with the, the Mohawkie thing. I don't know if you call that a Mohawky thing, but you know what I'm talking about. He comes to, to, to stand before Pan, and he has been against Pan ever since the beginning of the movie. And he comes and he draws his sword... But this is Pan's sword from way back in the day, and he kneels down, and he lifts it up to Peter, and he says this, like, powerful statement. He says, you are the Pan. You are the Pan. And that reminded me of what we read in Mark, where Peter, seeing Jesus and responding to Jesus' question, says, you are the Messiah, you are the Messiah, you are the, you are the Christ, you are the anointed one. And this marks a turning point moment in the gospel. In screenwriting, there are moments in in the story that are called turning points. And these are critical points in the narrative that mark, you know, and help determine the progression, help, you know, establish the plot and segment the story into thematic units. You and me, like screen writing like movies and like films we have turning point moments we have moments in our life that have come to define us and shape who we are and if I would hazard a guess, many of you here today probably can think of moments in your life that have defined you or was a was a turning point in your life let me give you some quick examples from my own life when I was 11 years old my parents moved from Oshawa to Windsor My dad got a new job and changed jobs, so we changed cities, which meant new life for me as an 11-year-old kid. New new church, new school, new friends, new everything. And if I trace back my kind of life, I can really pin pin it back on that moment where we moved from from Oshawa to Windsor. Now, if I fast forward a little bit, there's another turning point moment in life. I was in grade 8, and our teacher, I believe her name was Miss Ledbetter. If you're watching Miss Ledbetter, this is for you. I don't know if she's watching, she might be. But she would allow us to change desks every month, and so we had these desks that were in clusters of four, and we could change and talk about who we wanted to sit with for the month, and so we would change it all the time. And I remember on this particular month, the coolest kids in the school, well, they're probably the coolest in my class at least, but I felt like they were the coolest in the school, invited me to be a part of their four. And I remember being this, this, this grade eight student thinking, this is my moment, this is it, I've arrived, right? The problem was, is I already asked, or I was already told my friend that I, who was a little less than cool, that I would sit with him. So what am I going to do? Well, I know what I'm going to do, and you know all what you would done, is you want to sit with the cool kids, because when you're in grade eight, you're not thinking about anything else other than fitting in, right? But I don't know why I said what I said, but when he asked me, what are you going to do? I said, I told you, I'm going to sit with you. It was like the Spirit of God spoke through me. And as a, as a grade eight student, that's really come to define me. It was a defining moment. It was a turning point in my life. Now, I could go you go through my entire story. A lot of you know my story. And I could share some good turning point moments and bad turning point moments. But I want to lead you to this last one. It was when I was 18 years old. I was 18 years old. I wasn't in the church. I wasn't serving God. I wanted nothing to do with Christianity. But through a various series of events, I found myself sitting at the back of young adult services waiting for my friends to finish their service so that I can hang out with them. And hearing the word of God preached And seeing and watching others worship, there was something that was rekindled in me. And I remember this one particular Friday night, walking from the back at the end of the service to the front where my pastor was. And I said, can you pray with me? I want to re-give my life back to Jesus. And that was a turning point moment for my life. I would not be standing here today if it were not for that turning point moment. You and me, we have moments in our life that are turning points. There are moments that come to define who we are and who we'll be and on what we will stand. But no other moment is going to be more defining in your life than what you choose to believe about Jesus. No other thing in your life is going to be more defining than what you decide about Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? Now, in the story of Mark, we've been going through the book of Mark. um, Up until this point, everyone's reaction to who Jesus was was this. Who is this guy? He heals the sick and he heals the blind and he hears, heals the, the paralyzed and, and they're amazed. And they're asking themselves, who is this guy? He, he miraculously multiplies food. He, he walks on water, right? He, he speaks to weather and the weather obeys him. He, he talks with this, this level of authority like he's the author of life almost. He's eating and spending time with people that rabbis wouldn't usually eat and spend time with. Who is this guy? And what's interesting is the people that were asking the question the most were those that were closest to him. You ever notice that sometimes it's those closest to you that are the ones that are constantly asking you about your character and about your judgment, about who you are? They're asking this question, who is this guy? And so this marks a moment where it moves from, from who is this man to, to, to how he will become the Messiah. And in this, in this text in Mark chapter 8, Jesus turns the question around back on them. From who is this guy? He says, well, who do people say I am? He asks them the question. When, when Jesus asks the question, he's not looking for an answer. He's, he's divine. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He has all knowledge. He doesn't need to know the answer because he has them all. When, when God asks you a question, he's trying to get you to think. He's trying to get you to see something. He's trying to, to challenge your state of heart. Well, why do you think it's got to be that way? Well, why does that matter? Many of you, if you're listening to the voice of God, you'll hear him ask you questions. In the beginning of humanity in the creation story, Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, they sinned against God. They disobeyed his only command. And in doing so, they felt shame. And so they, they hid from God. And this, they literally hid from God. Not like a proverbial, allegorical kind of thing. They literally went and hid behind a bush. Because in their time, God walked with them. The father, it says, came down, and he walked in the garden, and they're physically hiding, and God calls out, where are you? God knows where they are. Like, I'm a father. When my kids play hide and seek, I know where they are, (laughs) especially because it's like, (laughs) where am I? I know where they are. God, God knows all things. If he's God, if he's the creator, he knows where they are, but he's trying to get them to see something. You've taken a step from me. You're far from me. So Jesus, in this, in this point in the in the in the narrative here, he turns the question around back at them that they've been asking, and he says, Who do people say I am? Now, if we were to ask that question today, if you were to ask people, what would they say? If you're your your coworkers and your neighbors and your spouse, and maybe, you know, the, the grocery store clerk or your barista, you know, who who is Jesus to? What would they say? So I, I went to the good old YouTube. And I found some answers here. These are real answers from real people. Someone said, He's just a historical figure. He's just a good moral teacher. Just a person. A selfless person. A marketing genius. A magician. He's God's son, but so is Gandhi and Muhammad. We're all God's children. Just a symbol of forgiveness. A prophet. An enlightened person. Someone who just tried to make the world a better place. An ominous figure. Is that who Jesus is? So Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say I am? And they start giving some really good answers. Well, some people are saying that you're you're John the Baptist, and others are saying you're Elijah. and, And some are saying one of the prophets. And... Personally, I would love to be compared to some of these guys. Like, I would love it if someone looked at me and said, man, you remind me so much of John the Baptist. You were just like the great prophet Elisha. I'd be like, wow, that's amazing. But listen, these are good opinions, but they're not right opinions. It's possible to have good opinions about Jesus, and they can be completely false. Right? We can have high opinions, but not high enough. And we can think very highly of Jesus, but thinking very highly of Jesus is going to do nothing to change your heart. Determine your eternal destination and shift your mindset. In fact, I believe that a lot of people are going to stand before God on the day of judgment and He's going to look at them and say, You had some really great opinions about me, but they were the wrong ones. You, you thought very highly of me, you had a lot of respect for me, but you had incorrect opinions. See, a lot of people respect Jesus. They don't always respect Christians. They don't always respect the church. They always, they don't always respect Christianity, but most people respect Jesus. But it's possible to have good opinions about him and then be completely false. So Jesus says to them, who do people say I am? And then he follows with this question, but who do you say I am? Because more important than what others think, what do you think? I, I'm not concerned about what your, your friend says or or what, what so-and-so says. More important than any of that is, is what you think. This is what Jesus is getting at. I care more about, I'm more concerned about what you think than others. I don't care about what politicians say. I don't care about what pop culture says. I don't care what media says. I don't care what your grandma says. I don't care what your spouse says. I don't care what your doctor says. I don't care what anybody else says. I care about what you say. Who do you say that I am? What matters is what you think about Jesus. What matters is what you believe about who he is. What you believe about Jesus is possibly the most important question that you can answer in your life. Because what you believe about Jesus is going to determine and define who you are as a christian as a follower of jesus it's going to define your faith it's going to define how you express worship in a worship service it's going to define how you give it's going to define how you serve it's going to define how you relate to others it's going to define how you react when someone cuts you off on the road you're like oh don't say that one i'm good with all the other ones (laughs) It's going to define you. It's going to determine who you are. It matters what you think about Jesus. I love what A.W. Tozer, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. A.W. Tozer was a pastor and writer, and I think around the long ago. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, even if we don't realize it. It is defining And what we choose to believe and what we decide about Jesus will mark a turning point in our lives. Is he a charismatic teacher? Did some good? Stirred up some complacency? Is he just a a good moral model of exemplary living? Kind of like a Gandhi? Is he a fairy tale story that we tell to our kids at bedtime so they can have better sleeps? Or is he Lord? Is he God? Is he who he says he is? Like Jesus made some pretty bold claims. The historical Jesus. The real person made some pretty bold claims. He claimed to be the the source of full life today. It says in John 10 verse 10, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Listen, here's what I believe. I believe many of us aren't experiencing a fulfillment in life because we have yet to really express faith in Jesus. He claimed to be better than water and bread. Like the, the two things we need: sustenance that we need daily just to survive physically. He claimed to be healer of sickness and disease. He claimed to be the door to life after death. He claimed to be the only way to heaven. He claimed to be God. I love what, I think it's C.S. Lewis said it, or maybe he heard it from someone else and said it again. He said he's either a liar, he's a crazy man, or he is who he says he is. He can't fall somewhere in between, although we like him to fall somewhere in between. Because he can't be a good moral teacher and then claim to be God. That would make him crazy. Or he's God. Who is Jesus to you? It's the most important question that you can answer. Now, when he says that, much like your quietness in this room today, nobody pipes up except for one guy. All the other disciples are quiet except for one guy, and his name is Peter, not Peter Pan. Peter, the quasi-leader of the group, right? If you know anything about Peter and, and through the, the gospels, he's, he's the loud one. He's the one that pipes up first. He's the one that when Jesus is walking the water, he's like, Can I come? You know, that's that's Peter. And he pipes up and he says, I know. You're, you're the Messiah. You're, you're the Messiah. Now, what we don't read in, in Mark, but we actually read about in Matthew, is Jesus' response to what Peter says and it reveals something um, deep and, and mysterious and profoundly theological. He says this in Matthew chapter 16. This is Jesus' response to Peter. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. See, Peter's awareness of the divinity of Jesus Peter's awareness of the Messiahship of Jesus had nothing to do with what he learned, or what he watched, or what he experienced, but it was revealed to him by God the Father through the Spirit. Here's the mystery in this, right? You can can learn that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, Hear me out in this. You can learn that Jesus is the Messiah. You can be taught that Jesus is the Son of God. I can show you through the scriptures and I can show you through, through evidences and I can point you to things that may be convincing to you. You can discover this. You can go on a journey of discovery. But what that will lead you to is just a head knowledge. It will give you knowledge about God, but it will not do anything to touch and transform your heart. True revelation that is profound and changes us and transforms us only comes through revelation from the Father. If you're here today and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the Messiah of life, that he died and rose again, that is because God revealed it to you. Now, here's what's really cool about this, is when we read in the stories, we don't see that Peter had this supernatural experience where God revealed it to him. It's not like the, the, the earth shook and the clouds parted and, and God said, Peter, he's the Messiah. You know, there's nothing like that. He didn't have this crazy, out-of-body experience I think that Peter wasn't even aware that God revealed it to him because Jesus had to say, hey, flesh and blood didn't teach you this, but that was revealed to you. It just, what he knew was because what was revealed. If you're here today and you can say wholeheartedly in a way that's changed your life that Jesus is Lord, that's because it's been revealed to you by God. This is why I pray earnestly for people in my life that don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus because I know that God can reveal it. And so I say, Lord, open their eyes. Help them to see, because I can teach, and I can point, and I can prove, and I can debate, and I can argue. But at the end of the day, that's gonna do nothing to save a soul. I remember listening to an apologist once. An apologist is someone that defends Christianity. They literally know the ins and outs of debating and defend Christianity. And I remember one, listening to one, um, and he said, you know what, I've had thousands of debates with non-Christians about Jesus, and almost all the time, I win the argument. And all the time, when someone does not have a way to respond back to me, and I've won the argument, no one has ever said, 'Let let me confess my sins and believe. You know what, I've had conversations with people on Facebook and messages You know, over coffee, and we've debated things about theology and life and existence. I've had them here, and I've never experienced someone say, you know what, you're right. Let me give my life to Jesus. Because you can be taught it, but it's not really revealed to your heart unless the Father opens up your eyes. I have people in my family who have confessed, who have said with their mouth that they know that Jesus is the Son of God but their life has not been transformed. Because it hasn't, what do they say? It hasn't reached that 12 inches jumping from the head to the heart. Now here's the, the theology behind this. What we know about God is only because he has chosen to reveal himself. There's a term for this, it's called divine revelation. It means that, that anything that has been known or will be known about God is only because he chose, chooses to reveal it. We can't come to that saving knowledge unless God opens up our eyes. So Peter says, you are the Messiah, and Jesus says to Peter, God's opened your eyes. And this marks a turning point in Mark's gospel, and it marks a turning point in Peter's life. So for the gospel, um, it, you begin to see, if we read the story, a different side of the narrative play out, and it sheds light on how Jesus would become the messianic king. And even though Peter proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah, he didn't quite truly understood what that meant. I've shared this over the last couple of weeks a little bit here or there. That Messiah for, for the people in the first century, for, for Jews in this time, was a term that, that believed that a military ruler was going to come in and establish an earthly kingdom and overthrow all like physical, ungodly, wicked uh, rule and oppression. And so they believed a military ruler was gonna come and change the course of history. But Jesus would begin to point to and reveal throughout the next half of the gospel is that his rule and his dominion and how he goes about things is completely different than what they expect. It's much deeper, it's much wiser. In fact, in the next paragraph, he begins to tell the disciples that he's going to die. He predicts his death, that he's gonna die. He says that the Messiah, the Son of Man, has gotta suffer and be killed and after three days would rise again. Now, they didn't quite understand what that meant because that kind of messed with their idea of what Messiah meant. And sometimes we don't really understand what that means. If God is God of all things, why would he have to come and suffer like he suffered and die like he died? What, but what Jesus reveals in the death, and, in his death and resurrection, is that he, his rule and his reign and his power transcends a moment in time. It wasn't just for them. It wasn't just for their oppression. It wasn't just for what they were experiencing. If a military ruler came then, that would be good then. But his rule and his dominion and his power transcends time. It transcends earthly experience. Because as far as you and I can physically know, death is the end. We, don't, we can't comprehend life after death because we haven't been there. We have faith in it, right? But we have these moments of things, like someone dying and coming back to life, historically. So Jesus is showing that his, his rule and his reign, it transcends earthly experiences. His rule and reign is over life and death itself. It's so much deeper, it's so much bigger than what they believed about the Messiah. It was a turning point for, for the gospel. And for Peter, it was a turning point. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come. It was defining, this wasn't just a rabbi that he would follow, a teacher that he would learn from or a thing that he would do, but this is now a Lord that he submits to. This is a God that he believes in and this is a savior who would save him. So what happens next? And listen, if you get nothing else from, from today, get this. Upon that confession of Peter's, an exchange takes place. Jesus looks at him and says this. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter." And on that rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the first time that Peter's called Peter. Up up until this point, his name was Simon. This is the first time he was called Peter. See, names in the first century world had a lot more weight to them than they do today. They were almost always associated with identity. And so an exchange is made, as Peter makes that confession of faith, saying you are the Messiah, Jesus gives Peter a new identity. See, when God reveals to you who he is, you begin to understand more about God, but then he begins to tell you who you are, and not who you were brought up to be, and not what your experiences led you to be, and not what the turning point moments of your life shaped you to be, but who you are in him. See, upon that confession of faith, he gives you an identity that's not marked by the decisions you've made in your past, but an identity that is marked in him. And so Peter says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, you're Peter. And on this rock, on this confession, on this declaration of faith, I will build my church. Just so you know, church is not built through programs and through services and through gatherings and online stuff and and signs outside and events. That's not how church is built. That's how organizations are made. But that's not how the church is built. The church is built through through proclamation and confession in the lordship of Jesus. Whether it's through worship or through the, through the proclamation of the word or through prayer. When we confess, that's how the church of, of God is built. And so Jesus says, upon that understanding, upon that confession, I build the church. And what? And the gates of Hades will not prevail. Nothing can stand against it. Nothing can come against it. Nothing can stop it. No power in hell. All that the devil has in his arsenal, all of his tactics, all of his schemes, cannot stand against that confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because it was revealed by the Father. Can I just, let me just say this. So, so it's very difficult for us to understand, but in the spiritual realm, our spiritual enemy is Satan, and the demonic forces of Satan, of a a hell it's it's not just this Hollywood theatrical thing and I said in the first service like that red devil with a pitchfork and and a and a little tail with a little spade at the end I don't know what it is triangle that that's what we often picture and so we we kind of dismiss it but in the spiritual realm Satan is a military ruler he's a he's a military general who has an army that's trying to take dominion over the lives of people Watch what I'm about to say here. They expected that a Messiah, a military ruler, was going to come and overthrow all oppression and rule and set up an earthly uh, kingdom. But Jesus is trying to show them it's much deeper than that. The devil is a very real military general in the spiritual realm who's trying to take dominion and rule. But upon that confession of faith that, that Peter made, Jesus says, listen, on that even the, the military rule and reign and dominion of the enemy cannot prevail against it because it's deeper than that. And my heart is for us to have a revelation of of who Jesus is because some of us are facing stuff in life and it's overcoming us and it's overwhelming us and we feel like we're not gonna survive and we feel like we're not gonna make it and we don't know what to do and it's because we haven't yet made that confession of faith. We haven't had that revelation of who God is because nothing can stand against that revelation. And just so you know, it's not just a one time moment it's like this daily thing I need to do. I need to, I need to recognize who God is and who Jesus is because I can slip back and I can kind of forget and I can kind of teeter the one way and I can let the things of life overcome me. But if what Jesus said is true, if he is God and he says that the gates of Hades will not overcome it, then I, I can stand upon the confession of faith that i got to make daily, because that military ruler, Satan, is daily working against me. He's at work daily trying to get his dominion and his rule and reign. So i got to daily make the confession, you are my God, you are my Lord, you are the Messiah. I know who you are, I know who you are, and in you I have an identity. You have an identity in Christ. You're his child. You know, I do everything in my power to protect my children. Everything in my power. Because I love them. I won't let anything happen to them. Now, things still happen. They still bruise their knees. They still fall down. They still fight with each other. My boys got into a fight yesterday. One of them hurled a a really hard um, ball at the other one. And he's got a black eye. Things still happen. They're still my kids. Protect them. And when you are in Christ and you make that confession, you are a child of God. You are a child of God. And he doesn't let anything happen to his kids. He doesn't let anything happen to his kids. Life still happens. But your eternity is wrapped up in him. So who is Jesus to you? That's my question. Who is Jesus to you? Like I said, I believe that we need a fresh revelation and I can't teach it to you and I can't point it to you. Only God can reveal that to your heart. So what we're gonna do is I'm gonna invite you to stand if you're able to stand. The team's gonna lead us in worship. And I want us to take a posture. If you would stand and bow your head and close your eyes, just take that posture of openness, maybe with your hands up or your palms open up. Just as a as a willingness to to receive the words of God speak to your heart and speak to your mind. So let's let's worship. Let me pray and let's worship God together. Father, we just, we take a moment and we pause. We open ourselves up to receive a fresh word from you. Would you show us in our heart and our mind as only you can, in our spirit and in our inner self, who you are? And as we take time to worship, would you speak to us about who we are in you? Lord, we love you. We give you this worship in Jesus'
0: name. Let's worship together.